My name's Roger Moore. Um, I'm the fellow down the end of the barrel playing James Bond. This is Live and Let Die and was my first James Bond. United Nations, New York City. Little did I know in 1972 when we were shooting there that I would actually be working for a branch of the United Nations that I have done for the last 15 years as a UNICEF goodwill ambassador. UNICEF being, of course, the United Nations Children's Fund. When we flew to New York for the making of this, little did I know at the time that one of our fellow passengers was, uh, who was Danny Kay, and he was, of course, one of the first goodwill ambassadors UNICEF ever had, and quite wonderful. As a goodwill ambassador, I have a number of functions, a number of hats to wear. One, of course, is to go out into the field to see for myself exactly the plight of children and mothers in the developing world, then to come back and talk about it and to help raise funds and awareness. It is a job that I was introduced to by Audrey Hepburn, and I have never regretted one second of the 15 years I've been doing it. This is an old friend of mine from my days at MGM. His father, a very, very famous film star, was actually my, my mother's favorite. His name was Richard Dix, and this is Bob Dix, one of his two sons. Bob actually was living down in New Orleans when we arrived, and I bumped into him, and I I thought this would be a good part for him. <laughs> Not being a stiff, but uh, it was good to have a friend in the movie. Whose uh, funeral is it? Yours. <laughs> this is Docker Street in... New Orleans. Thank goodness none of this uh, area was destroyed by the terrible floods. <laughs> I'd never been to New Orleans before this. Thank you. 
This actor was uh, tied to the stake and they were waving the snake in front of his face and, and his head dropped forward. And so then Guy said, cut, Dave, and step out. Uh, he had passed out, didn't need to step out, he had passed out completely with fear. The title song, of course, Live and Let Die, was uh, written by Paul and Linda McCartney uh, and performed by Paul and Wings and arranged by George Martin. But if this ever-changing world in which we Still a very popular song. Makes you give in and cry. I'd known Paul since the Beatles started uh, <laughs> and Really, before they became big, uh, I, I was doing The Saint and worked a couple of times with Jane Asher. She would play Professor's Daughters, oh, please, Simon, help me. Uh, I used to cartoon on uh, what we call tracking boards, black boards with chalk and caricature people. And I did a cartoon of Jane Asher and Paul McCartney and entwined it in a heart. I said, this was going to be my, my Christmas card. And she said, oh, please, you mustn't. And I said, why not? She said, because if it, if it gets known about Paul and I, it'll, it'll destroy his career. And I, in all innocence, said, what career? How little we know. This is Madeline Smith. Beautiful, beautiful girl. Of course, I'm lucky enough to be balancing my Pulsar watch for the first time when it had ever been seen on screen. Probably the last, actually. I wonder why they gave Madeline Smith the name Miss Caruso. It uh, has none of the double entendre that most Bond girls had as a name. Bernard Lee, M. 
Good morning, 007. Good, uh, good morning. Insomnia, sir? Instructions. You haven't much time. I'll explain as you pack. Uh, pack, sir? Three of our agents have been killed during the last 24 hours. Dawes in New York, Hamilton in New Orleans, and Baines in the Caribbean. Oh, Baines. I rather like Baines. We shared the same bootmaker. Uh, coffee? Sir? I take it these killings are connected. That's precisely what you're going to say. Espresso machines have not been seen, which is the reason that M is looking bewildered. Uh, they hadn't been seen before. Not outside an Italian restaurant. Dawes was in New York, keeping an eye on its prime minister, one Dr. Kananga. Hamilton was on loan to the Americans in New Orleans. Is that all it does? By the way, congratulations seem to be in order. The Italians were most impressed by the way you handled the Rome affair. Thank you, sir. Sugar? Oh, thanks. Miss Moneypenny, played by Lois Maxwell, who was my classmate at Rada, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Miss Caruso. Uh, you wouldn't happen to know where she is. Ah, Miss Moneypenny. Good morning, Moneypenny. Good morning, sir. It's only the hour that's indecent. Really? I've got your ticket to New York. Q has repaired your wristwatch and some background material on San Monique. Thank you, Moneypenny. I'm sure the overburdened British tax... That's how I, I was trying to remember before this started, how, how I changed from the pulsar to the... The watch with the magnet. Perfectly adequate watchmaker, just down the street. Good God. You see, by pulling out this button, sir, it turns... A hyper-intensified magnetic field. I'm sure, I don't remember now, but I'm sure I had a, a great problem saying that line. It's the sort of line that Q would have. Sorry, sir. Thank you. Dr. Kananga is at present in New York. The CIA have been informed and they're helping out with the surveillance. Your flight arrives at 11.30 a.m. Now, but I need my coat. Oh, oh allow me. How did I become Bond? <laughs> Morning, Bond. Sir, Miss Moneypenny. Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman who everybody knows produced these films. Uh, we'd met in the early 60s <laughs> in the very Bondian locale uh, across a chemin de fer table in the Curzon House Club in, in London, in Curzon Street. And uh, I really didn't know too much about Bond, except uh, that the Daily Express had been running a competition to find out who would be a 
could bond, much as they're doing today, to find out who shall replace Piers Brosnan. And a couple of years later, of course, they were with Cubby and Harry, and they found Dr. No had opened, and we had started learning about the popularity of the series. And after about four bonds, Harry started talking to me and Cubby about the possibility of my becoming a bond. He travels with others. He will oppose. I was doing the same at the time, and uh, it sounded an attractive idea, but it was very unlikely because the Saints seemed to be going on for a long time. And anyway, Sean was very happily uh, established as Bond. And after Bond number five, they approached me seriously, but then the film that was going to be made was going to be shot in Cambodia. And as uh, hostilities started in that locale, uh, the film was shelved. And by the time they got around to the next one, I was not available and it became George Lazenby. And then Sean came back, I was doing The Persuaders. And then finally, Sean uh, left, uh, apparently forever. And I was asked again. Harry said, you know, Cubby wants you, and I'd like you, and Cubby thinks you're a little overweight, and I think your hair's too long, and they kept getting to me lose another pound and lose some more hair, and finally I said, why didn't you get a, a bald-headed fellow who was skinny to start with instead of putting me through all this grief? Now we're in New York. And uh, this is Jay Chitwood driving. And alongside is a pipmobile being driven by Whisper. Earl Jolly Brown. A really suitable name for it. This was towards the end of uh, the actual schedule that we <laughs> we were doing this. To be able to shoot on this uh, stretch of highway meant getting a lot of cooperation from the mayor's office and the police. And what we did, we would, uh, they would, the police would stop the traffic at one uh, or two turnoffs so that they would not be coming on, on this particular stretch of highway. And when the all clear was given, we would get the signal to start with our stunt vehicles, principal vehicles, and we could drive and then go for about two or three turnoffs, knowing that nobody else is likely <laughs> to come in innocently and sort of join in the fun. This, of course, was 1972, 73. And one of the black stunt drivers uh, was running out of gas after what we had to do was come off the highway and then go back two or three blocks to uh, get back onto the route again. Well, he pulled in with his new Cadillac or whatever it was into a gas station. And uh, a police uh, patrolman 
looked at him and said, that's a strange number you've got on. And he said, well, it's a fake number. And with that, they put handcuffs on him. And he was being marched off to the Huskar, and uh, he's trying to say, I'm making a movie, and et cetera, et cetera. And eventually, Cobby came and bailed him out about six hours later, after we'd missed this car very much in the, in the chase. However, I do have some observations to make. Take a letter, please. To Secretary General, Pan Island Unity Conference. Sir. I wish to point out that too many of our island neighbors have once again let themselves be bullied. Yafik Koto, the first time we meet Yafik Koto, we meet Jane Seymour. And Tihi, played by Julius Harris. A nice man, sadly, he, he died quite recently. Our economic outlook has improved dramatically. By exercising our policy of friendship to all with favoritism towards none, new respect for the entire area has been engendered. And even though some of my most David Harrison, my old friend, playing Felix Leiter. Take your time, buddy. Kananga's knitting a flag in there. It might be the easiest thing to do. One of the things admired more than my performance in this film was my wardrobe. Uh, my tailor then was Cyril Castle in London. I remember one day it was a sort of a slow day on the set. There wasn't much to do except start playing some practical jokes on Yafik Koto. Because I remember a few days before, Yafik Koto had come on the set and he was really flaming mad about uh, a black singer he had seen on television, Lovelace Watkins. He thought that he'd got blonde hair flattened down and he thought this was a man denying his African heritage and he didn't like it. Lovelace Watkins, I might add, was a, a, a singer that I'd uh, heard in the, the Bahamas and had recommended him actually to uh, an agent in London and to Lou Grade as being someone with great potential. And one agent, Billy Marsh, who was a friend of mine, went down to Spain to hear him sing and signed him under contract, brought him to England. Lovelace became, in 72, 73, quite a big singing star in England. So on this slow day, I decided, well, here we would go. And what we did was that uh, I sent Yafit a telegram, which said, I hear you've been saying nice things about me. Stop, I would love to come and lunch. Stop arriving at one today. And I signed it, Lovelace Watkins. Uh, next, I got uh, Earl Jolly Brown to pose on, on the phone and call him as Lovelace. And then I got a publicist still from ATV of, uh, of Lovelace and sent it to Yaffa and inscribed it, kind regards, Lovelace Watkins. And then uh, a post was made up of Bond is back, Lovelace Watkins and Roger Moore, Stein, live and let die. And then Lovelace Watkins was put on the call sheet 
uh, as dialogue director. And then when we came to the scene where I have to drown Yafet, we were going to put him on the call sheet, swimming coach. Stupid things you do on a slow day when you're making a film. I got him in my sights. Hey, you know where you going, man? Uptown, I believe. Uptown? You headed into Harlem, man. Well, you just keep on the tail of that jukebox and there's an extra 20 in it for you. Hey, man. Arnold Williams. <laughs> Very funny, good delivery of a line. For 20 bucks, uh, drive me to a Klu Klux Klan cookout. One twenty-fifth, you got a honky on your tail. This is very interesting shooting up here. I'd ne never been to Harlem before. He's heading east. There were parts in those days of Harlem that were controlled by gangs. And we rather overstayed our welcome in one location. And we were advised very seriously to move on because protection money was running out in that particular area. Sure hope you make friends easy. Right on, brother. He's heading on in. This is one of the moments that uh, Guy didn't want me to say a line that could be construed as a Sean line, which was a martini shake and not stirred. Of course, I said bourbon and water. I never actually ever said a martini shake and not stirred in any of the Bond films that I was to do afterwards. Although it would appear that every bartender in the world and every other spy knew that I took martini shake and not stir. I'd like something on the side as well. Information. Three men and a girl came in. I think the guy Hamilton who directed this was was more like Bond than anybody who played Bond. He was a a war hero, he was in, in the Royal Navy, he did daylight raids into France with uh, small craft. Very, very tough and very well organized, and despite the fact that uh, he was Navy, I called him the general because he was such a good organizer. James Bond. I know who you are, what you are. Jane Seymour, uh, 
before we, we before we started shooting, I had a, a letter from Dickie Attenborough, Lord Attenborough, Richard Attenborough, to say that his uh, daughter-in-law, she was married to his son Michael, uh, was going to be in this. He, she had uh, done a couple of things. She'd been a very good Juliet at Stratford. And would I be nice to her? <laughs> I'm always nice to people. Uh, it wasn't difficult to be nice to her. Ah. Very good for shooting around corners. <laughs> this scene contains really good Mankiewicz dialogue. Tom Banquets, of course, was the screenwriter. Fascinating. Well, that's you, quite obviously, a, an amazing resemblance. Tommy, am I in there as well? It's amazing how you can go through a film and see it a few times and not be aware of something, but 007 was in the back of the cards, in the pattern. You have found yourself. Oh, I'm telling you, don't go to L.A. and clean it up. Yathakota, I don't recognize him anywhere. Is this the stupid mother that tailed you uptown? There seems to be some mistake. My name is... My name is for Team Stone, baby. Y'all take this honky out and waste him, you know? <laughs> Why didn't I get dialogue like that? Waste him? Is that a good thing? The reading is over. Nothing about my future? Us? Now, I promise you'll stay right there. I, I shan't be long. Yeah, I remember that this was one of the locations where we were told to move on because we were being overlooked. Keep your hands up, honky. What do you think this is? Blow his friggin' head off, man. I think this is one of my favorite lines coming up. Good thinking, Bond. A white face in Harlem. Wonderful line. Yeah, clever disguise. White face in Harlem. I'm surprised they didn't spot you, too. There's a most remarkable girl back there with a deck of cards. I saw those cards on the way up. Spades, James, every one. You were nailed the minute you left 74. There's only supposed to be one man who can pull together that much black muscle in this town. Calls himself Mr. Big. You name the business, they say he has a black concession. What 
a foreign prime minister like Kananga want with an American gangster? The question is, what would Mr. Big want with a two-bit island diplomat? Mr. Big? Where the hell does he fit into this mess? Another good line. A genuine Felix Leiter illuminating. We just found out that Kananga's got a private plane and he's leaving for Very San clever, Tom Mankiewicz. Well, then get me on the next available flight, will you, Felix? I already did. I just knew you wouldn't pass up a chance to get away from where the real action is. <laughs> Jeffrey Holder, Baron Samby, which he had played Baron Samby in House of Flowers for Truman Capote before this film. But Jeffrey, uh, I knew of because I, in 1949, I was working in television in England, working as a director's assistant in uh, the BBC, and we were doing a weekly variety show. And one of the acts we brought over was Bosco Holder, who was Jeffrey's brother, and Bosco Holder was the first steel band to be heard from uh, Trinidad. Mrs. Bond? She arrived earlier this afternoon, sir. Said she preferred something a little more private. Bungalow 12. An incurable romantic, Mrs. Bond. I'd never been to Jamaica before. Night Island. I've been back a number of times since. I went back for UNICEF to Jamaica. There are, of course, problems with some of the children there. <laughs> On location in Jamaica, we had my carrot with a trailer. Today, artists would have a Winnebago, <laughs> customed to their desires. This is my first Bond film. We were in Jamaica. I don't think there were any Winnebagos around. If there were, they, I certainly wasn't getting one. I had one of those caravans that are towed behind a car. Uh, they just have two wheels in the center, and when they stop, they put two bricks underneath to level it up. And I'd gone, and of course the toilet arrangements in them <laughs> leave a great deal to be desired. In actual fact, it was a, it was a, a bucket with a sort of a list, little plastic lid around it. Well, I was perched on the plastic lid, and I heard a, <laughs> and there was a almighty thump. I was thrown off the bucket, and I was now looking out at the road, and a truck had come down the hill and just taking the corner off, the corner where I happened to be sitting. Room service, please. Oh, room service, this is Mr. Bond, Bungalow 12. I'd like a bottle of Bollinger, please. Slightly I must tell you about <laughs> I'd like a bottle of Bollinger. And we had Bollinger standing by on the set. Product placement. Uh, 
I thought it'd be really cute just to say Don Perignon. It did not go down well. But the Bollinger did. Went down very well. It's a wonderful introduction to Jamaica, having somebody slip a, a nasty, slimy little reptile through the air vent. As the usual way in the British film industry, we shot the bath scene in the middle of winter on an unwarmed stage at Pinewood. Fabergé had just before this been working uh, with Cary Grant actually on the board of Fabergé. Of course the reason I'm smoking a cigar and this is an excuse to have something already alight because of the snake and the way I'm going to escape from it and I'm about to save myself with a Fabergé uh, hairspray by igniting it to rid myself of an unpleasant little serpent. Those flat feet aren't mine. They belong to my double. Why would I dab hairspray on my face? <laughs> it must have been deodorant. They could get rid of your armpit hairs. Mrs. Bond, I presume? I'm Rosie Carver. Rosie Carver, played by Gloria Hendry, posing as Mrs. Bond in order to get into my room. Yes, either you or dear Uncle Felix. Custom 38, Smith & Wesson. Corrugated three-inch stock, no serial number, standard CIA issue. Question is, why point it at me? The man who delivered your... Gloria was, uh, was a delight to work with. She was really fun. Just trying to be careful. As for Felix Leiter, you're right. I'm very I've sporty. CIA down here for some time now. Had a very good singing voice. And asked if I would help out if I could. Oh, perhaps you'd better start by getting your head together. 
Hmm? <laughs> There's a mirror in the bathroom. Yes. yes. You're only my second mission, you know. My first was Baines, the agent who was killed. It's a relief to know I'm next in line for the same kind of aid. Oh, a snake. I forgot I should have told you you should never go in there without a mongoose. Oh, I should have never gotten into any of this. I'm going to be completely useless to you. Oh, I, I'm sure we'll be able to lick you into shape. Uh, Tom Mankiewicz uh, <laughs> thought that that ad lib of mine was far too crude and said that it should be... I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'd, so that you don't get the blame for it, why don't you give me a, a screen credit, just say, script by Tom Mankwitz, one additional line by Roger Moore. Felix told me there'll be moments like this. What did good old Felix suggest? If all else failed, cyanide pills. I settled for two bedrooms. <sighs> Good night, Mr. Bond. Mrs. Bond. <laughs> oh. Now, of course, we get into the voodoo. Well, and Rosie Carver recognizes that that is not something good. If you insist, I promise. You're talking of voodoo. I, I thank you. We had a visit on the set one day by a man who was up, I don't know whether he was the mayor or something of Ocho Rios. Uh, and apparently they did tarot card readings and they said they would like to do one of mine. And the publicity department said, would you mind if we filmed it? They, they, they actually did a little bit of filming. And this man who had before sort of come to me in a sort of suit and tie turned up wearing, a, a, I think, a dinner jacket and, uh, with four girls who sang, there's love in the air, wonderful thing. It was one of those, sort of, which was sort of rather amused me, it was rather funny. But then he started reading the cards, and he said that I, I was going to have a son, I think, that I was going to be a world leader. So I asked my son, Jeffrey, do you want to be prime minister? And he said, yes. So that was a very quick acceptance speech. Uh, another one was that I would, I would have to be very careful, otherwise I might have an accident in a car that was black. Come on, Rosie, this one seems eager enough. So, for, although I didn't believe in any of this, I, I kept out of cars that were black after that. Uh, and I believe he said I was going to be a humanitarian. Well, I did end up working for UNICEF. Quarrel Jr., played by Roy Stewart. 
down slowly. Keep your hands up. As I was saying, Quarrel, a lousy agent, but the compensation speak for themselves. Rosie Carver, meet the man who shares my hairbrush. Quarrel Jr. I really saw When we were shooting this sequence out at sea, we, uh, because with a big film unit, you're shooting, and English film units have to be catered. They, they want their tea around and their, <laughs> their bacon rolls. And so we had a ship from the Jamaican Navy uh, that was standing by with things to eat and drink on it. And one day we were there and a guy said, well, I think it's time we had something to eat and drink. Where's the ship? And the ship had disappeared. And apparently they'd gone off, uh, there'd been a tip-off about a marijuana dope runner, but they'd gone off chasing that. He comes again. There will be violence. He approaches even now. By land or water? Water. Jamaica was the, the home of Ian Fleming, a house called Golden Eye. Yes, indeed, I visited Golden Eye while we were shooting this sequence. Very Golden Eye, Ian Ozenthrupt. I remember that uh, Noel Card had known Fleming, but he'd never been to his house, and people kept, you know, he said, kept saying, you must come and visit. And Goldeneye itself is a very clinical-looking house, a bit like something about which fights are in the jungle. And when Noel was asked what he thought of Goldeneye, he said, it's very golden eye, ear, nose, and throat. I said, is it death? It is death. They're coming. Rosie knows what to do. Now, I want nobody's this time. No trace. It's down there. But uh, I thought you said Baines was killed up in the hills, darling. <laughs> One of the things I remember about Otto Rios was that I was ready to go to the location, Harry Saltzman. He said, I'm driving you. There's an excellent patio, man. I said, oh, fine. Trouble with Harry drove as if everybody on the island of Jamaica knew that he was the producer of the Bond film and he was very important and they shouldn't be on the road because we would be coming around bends on the wrong side. <laughs> I, have no, I was a nervous wreck by the time we got to the location. And incidentally, after that, uh, <laughs> I said I would much rather drive myself to the locations. James, oh, you don't know what finally you was meant to me. We got to the location, as you always do, there. It's an English crew, they're going to have breakfast when they arrive. And there are the tables set up with tablecloths and knives and forks and, and plates and everything lined up. George Crawford, who then did the catering. Uh, and I very stupidly said to Harry, well, this really is living until it's an, an English production. 
knives and forks and tablecloth. Harry saw red and he immediately thought that the catering budget was too much and it had to be cut. So George was given a pitiful amount of money to, f to feed everybody every day. So not too much was said except it became a packed lunch and each lunchbox contained a bit of chicken going green around the edges and a soggy tomato. <laughs> there, were, there were of course union meetings and shop stewards and production chiefs and the catering allowance went up back to where it was before. was uh, not very tall, was rather round, uh, big, big brown eyes and sort of like a little cuddly bear look about him. But a temper like nobody you could imagine. He really could let fly, would go off. At the side. But there again, then he would laugh. He could be a very, very generous host as he was with me many a time hosting. And he again was a, was a gambler and we used to play uh, Ken Adam and Letizia and uh, Maurice Binder and Michael Caine and Shakira and uh, myself. We used to play a lot of gin rummy and a lot of poker. We spent many uh, uh, evenings with Harry and then, and then my children uh, were, were growing up with this and they saw that Harry Saltzman was rather large in the girth and that Cubby was large in the girth and that Michael Klinger, who was another producer that I worked with, was rather large. And they thought that producers were rich and could eat a lot and that's why they were all very big. Uh, but, uh, our associate producer on The Persuaders had invited uh, my son and daughter at that time, who were tiny, over to their house in Wembley. And the only producer's houses they'd been to had swimming pools and this. And they came into this small house in Wembley and said, where's your pool? If you are to lose it, I myself will take it away. Natural for children who've been brought up in uh, rather spoiled circumstances. Not that my children are spoiled, I'm the one that's spoiled. The hang gliding was, uh, the man in charge of that was Bill Bennett who really introduced hang gliding. Sadly, he was, uh, he, he died in 2004. But I was suspended on the end of this hang glider, way out over the cliffs. 
with somebody in charge of the crane that was uh, supporting the wire that didn't really know what he was doing and it was rather uncomfortable and rather nerve-wracking for somebody who, who doesn't like heights. A very Bondian moment, a reversible jacket, tear away dark trousers. Put down those cards. It is a blasphemy. I didn't know that I would become a UNICEF ambassador and I don't think that she knew if she would become Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman when we were doing this. Mistaken. It's impossible, forbidden for me. Now you must go. But you do believe. I mean, really believe in the cards. Ted Maud, who was the director of photography on this, had done a number of bonds. Ted Moore, of course, was uh, an Academy Award winner, man for all seasons. But he did have a, a physical problem. He had a, a metal plate in his head. He had had surgery, and it was not easy making a film on location. Long hours, and you've got to be in, in good health. You knew the answer before it was given. Strangely enough, somehow, so did I. Apparently, uh, ladies who watched this film didn't approve of Bond's tactics in stacking the cards in his favor. But what's a man to do? You've got to make a living. So it's finally happened. This is it did to my mother and her mother before her. Well, of course it did. Well, you're, you're visual proof of that, aren't you? First time for everyone. Now tell me. It looks as though it's very nice and a balmy evening in Jamaica, but we were actually on the stage at Pinewood shooting this. Not very romantic with 60 technicians looking at you and sparks peering down over the rail. And also the temperature, I, I don't know how on the screen you can't see the goosebumps. But it was not warm. I think we were wearing football socks. A little bit of information, that's all. Power. I've lost it. The high priestess is wife to the prince no longer of this world. One of the, the questions that I've been asked countless times in interviews is 
How is your bond, before I made this, how is your bond going to be different to Connery's? And then after I made it, was how, is your, how was your bond different? I said, well, did you see it? Uh, but I didn't consciously set out to make it different to Sean. Sean projected his personality into the part, just as I, whatever personality I have, I project into the parts I play. If they are this type of role, where there is no background, you have no disguise, you're not having got a beard, uh, you're really somebody, you're playing something that has to look like you. And so you make it fit yourself. I remember a, a cartoon of very famous actor George Arliss, who played many characters such as Disraeli and I think Napoleon, and he, and he is having a nightmare and he's surrounded by all the characters that he played and they're pointing their finger at him and they're saying, and what's more, you play this sound like you. I've never been there. It's never taken me there. If I'm guilty of anything, it's of uh, making everything sound like me. People sometimes say, oh, you look like you do on screen. Well, it, it's because I, I am me. I'll kill you. Us, darling. They will kill us. Love was lesson number two. Togetherness. Till death do us part or thereabouts. Is there time before we leave? lesson number three. Absolutely. There's no sense in getting up half-cocked. I had a nickname for for Jane, which was Baby Bernhardt, because it was the first lead she had had on screen. She, well, naturally, she took it very seriously. You're not scared, are you? Lesson number four, follow the scarecrows. I think Guy went along with it, too. You know, he didn't have a get on the bus when they could quite easily have done it with a double and have a spinning around. Uh, but I remember we, we had, as I told you before, George, as I've said before, George Crawford, would have a table set for a director and the producer and uh, heads of department and the stars of the film. And if you said you liked uh, tomato ketchup or you liked Branson pickle, it would be on the table. And so by the time you've been into the film two or three weeks, the table had all these condiments set in the middle of it. And Jane would always say, would you pass me this? Then would you pass me that? Um, <laughs> so we decided that when Jane came up and sat down, we would just all silently get up and leave. And she burst into tears. I've never felt so bad in my life. It was, it was supposed to be a joke that went wrong. I think I've apologized to her since. If I haven't, I apologize to you now, Jane, if you're looking at this.
you see some of those squibs are very close to it. We've lost him. He has the girl. Talking of guns, I... I worked with an actor in Hollywood once who was rather egotistical and uh, smiled at his own reflection a lot. And he was sitting with a revolver and, and sort of had the barrel pointing the side of his head. And somebody said, be careful, that is loaded, well, you know, with blanks. And he said, I've handled guns before. And he touched the trigger and it went off. Blew half his hair off. Nobody was upset. There was a ripple of laughter all the way around the studio. <laughs> I found a, a hairdresser crying and I said, What's the matter? And she said, This actor had been rude to us. So I went to him and I said, Look, I'm going to break a vow I made to myself I'm going to speak to you uh, why are you so unpleasant to people he said I'm in the industry to not to win a popularity award I'm in it to be a good actor I said well you failed on being a good actor why don't you go for a runner up in the popularity stakes he chased me all over the studio fortunately I ran faster What fun. Before we started shooting, I went off to London Passenger Transport bus depot in London um, and was taught how to spin a bus on an oil patch. First time you do it, it's rather hairy. You think the bus is going to topple over, but of course they don't. They're wonderfully well balanced. <laughs> Another time when we were shooting, on, on, on this, when we were shooting with the bus, was, the traffic had been stopped and I was waiting at the front of this queue of traffic for a signal that the road was clear ahead so that I could probably do the shot we're looking at now. And we're sitting there, there was a, a car alongside me, uh, a Mercedes, I was, we've been waiting 15 minutes, and, and he said, this is too bad, you know. This is my land. He was one of those sugar plantation owners. Not an absentee one. The man who taught me the way to drive a bus and actually did some of this driving on the island was brought up from London. It was Morris Patchett. Very nice fellow. We had a very romantic moment when we were shooting at Jamaica. One, one of our assistant directors, Nick Hemsley Cox, was going to marry Sheila Cullen, and we did it on the beach which was 
a lovely romantic moment all you need when you're making an action movie like this. If I remember correctly, I, I ended up having to read these lines, or say the lines rather, to an electrician, because Jane got a fit of the giggles and couldn't stop every time I opened my mouth, she started to laugh. And it's not uncommon when you're filming that people break up with laughter, and it becomes very difficult to get out of it. How quickly can we make it to New Orleans? I was in a play uh, called I Capture the Castle with Virginia McKenna. Uh, I had to make an entrance. This was a matinee day, and we were playing in Bournemouth. Hamilton was killed in New Orleans. And I sort of played the uh, gawky young man who has been up to London and has been photographed and is going to have a career as a model. And I come back and I start telling her about it and say, oh, we're really thrilling, we got the train. And I had a, an ill-fitting suit, with cuffs uh, too short on my wrist. And Virginia was sitting with her back to the audience and she started to laugh. And I started, I started getting the giggles. And, and, and I'm full face to the audience now, biting through the inside of my mouth, through the flesh, blood pouring between my teeth trying to stop the laughter. And, and then you dread that moment because you've got the evening performance coming up and you know you're going to laugh the same, that she is going to smile at you. No, you. no matter what you do, she's going to look at you. Not a pleasant feeling. Just ease back now, Jim. Relax. Mr. Big wants to see you. As usual, uh, there's always a cold breeze blowing at an, on an airfield. And this was a fairly cold day, and I was, had suffered for some years with uh, making kidney stones and would have renal colics. And renal colics usually start with a pain in the small of the back and a pain in the lower areas and cold does not improve it and while we were shooting this I mean in the rehearsal I I said I don't feel that good I want to sit down and Derek Cracknell said you know go to the trailer and I went into my Winnebago and a few minutes later he came in to see if I was all right say that we we're ready to shoot and saw that my knees were locked underneath my chin and he said uh, I'll call a doctor. The doctor came and they drove the Winnebago to the hospital. And I was sort of filled with a drip with painkillers and fluid. <laughs> that time, uh, 
some official came in and said, you know, right, what's your name? And I told him in a rather groggy fashion because I was doped. And he said, uh, who do you work for? And I said, Eon Production. He said, what's the address? I said, I don't know. He said, you work for people you don't know? Then where do you live? And I, I said, I live in, uh, in Denham. He said, well, what's the address? I said, Sherwood House. Tyler Slane, he said, well, what's the street number? I said, I don't have a street number, I have a house. He said, well, if you don't have a street number, how does the mailman find you? I made some caustic remark because I'm famous, you idiot. I never saw him again. And I was discharged from the hospital rather quickly. Great uh, stunt work by Joey Chitwood and his team. The lovely lady with the large glasses is Ruth Kempf. She had wonderful reactions. And I remember her tagline. This was fun to drive an airplane without uh, wings and not leaving the ground. Okay, Don, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Right, talk to you later. I gotta go and give a lesson. I think what this uh, did, what Guy Hamilton did with the action was the comedy of it. And it wasn't a question whether Bond is going to live. We all know that Bond is going to live because there's another hour of film to go. The joke is, how is he going to survive? In what comedic way will he sort of outdo the villains? Frantic, I'll keep the other three. Yes, sir. Mr. Bleeker, any suggestion of that kind should be forwarded in writing to Washington. How is Mrs. Bond? Intensive care, but she'll pull through. Yes, sir. Oh, no, sir, no one's questioning your patriotism. I'm sure you're a veteran, sir. Felix, you might find out if there's a Philly of Soul restaurant on. James, we're way ahead of you. It's down on Docker Street. Strutt is watching it now. This is Docker Street. You see, he had not seen the first scene, this man. Otherwise, he wouldn't have stood there so complacently. I was just looking at Philly of Soul there, and I remember when we had the, the premiere of this, or the, the first screening of it in America, uh, I think at Grauman's Chinese and Sammy Davis was in the audience and when Philly of Soul came up he set the tone for the audience reaction he screamed with laughter it is a very very funny and quite subtle Philly of Soul <laughs> we were on the way to that premiere and I was in a, in a stretch limo with Tom Mankiewicz, who was uh, one of the writers of this, of this screenplay. And uh, we were just turning off, I think, Sunset onto Highland. And somebody threw a tomato out of a passing car. Not deliberately at us, but I said to Tom, <laughs> The movie hasn't even opened yet. 
I think on the way to that screening, I was, it, was probably, it was probably the one time I, I was nervous because here I was back in Hollywood after many years being away and I was starring in a big, big expensive movie and how would the audience take it? That's why I was so grateful to Sammy. Bourbon noise, please. Two Sazeracs. Where's your sense of adventure, Jane? The Filio Soul restaurant was, of course, a fake frontage. The, the, the real building was a dry cleaners. And when David and I go up to go in, the, the door was locked. We had to go and find the dry cleaners to open it. This week's deliberate mistake. I thought Harry was laying down on the job. Give it a cry. Say, live and let Singers B.J. Honor. What does it matter to ya? When you got a job to do, you got to do it well. David, I'd met in, uh, we'd met very briefly in California. Uh, when he was doing The Fly, he was under contract to 20th Century Fox. But we didn't really get to know one another until mid-60s when I went to a film festival in Cairo and Alexandria, and David was there. Uh, we became very good friends. I asked him if he'd be interested in doing an episode of The Saint. And he came back, he actually started to live in London with his, with his wife, Bridget. And we're still friends. In fact, if I were you, I'd uh, watch my step from now on. He did uh, another, well, he did another Bond, and then he did uh, another film with me, North Sea Hijack, or Folks, reshot in Ireland. But first... There's one little question. Although Ken Adam had done other sets for Bond, uh, he did not do the sets. He was not the production designer on this. was Sid Kane, also a very, very talented uh, set designer. Did you mess with that? I think that probably if uh, Ken had done it, this room would, of course, have been about ten times the size. And Conanger, I'll tell him when I see him. You ain't gonna see the sunlight unless you answer me! I had no idea you were so frightened of him. Did you touch her? When I see Conanger. Right. That's what happens when you pick your nose. Revealing. Kananga, poppy grower in thousands of acres of well camouflaged fields protected by the voodoo threat of Baron Sandy. And as Mr. Big, distributor and wholesaler through a chain of Philly of Soul restaurants. Wholesale? <laughs> a very vain villain having a mirror over there to <laughs> remove his makeup. 
it seems to be an awful lot of trouble to go to. Having to put on their disguise every day. Entering into a fastly competitive field when parts You might just as well have been an actor. Man or woman, black or white, I don't discriminate. Two tons of heroin with a street value well over a billion dollars. Nationally distributed free. Well, that should make a certain group of families rather angry, wouldn't you say? Angry? Why, my dear Mr. Barn? It'll positively drive them out of their minds and subsequently out of the business. Quite ingenious. <laughs> a, a sort of junkies welfare system. Well, merely until the number of addicts in the country has doubled, shall we say. Then I will begin to market that acreage that you blundered into the other day. That heroin will be very expensive indeed, leaving myself and the phone company... This actually was a, uh, was a fun scene to do. You know, many actors get rather fidgety. Well, they had the answer. They locked my arms down. <laughs> I couldn't move my hands. I couldn't saw the, uh, the air thus, as Shakespeare said, or in Hamlet. Concerned. Did you touch her? Well, it's not the sort of question gentleman answers. Well, having set the example, I don't expect Miss Solitaire to be any less the lady. By the way, that's a particularly handsome watch you're wearing, Mr. Barn. May I see it, please? You'll forgive me if I don't get up. Butterhook. Love that line. Thanks, Mr. Mangowitz. You will step the little finger of Mr. Bond's right hand. His right hand. Starting with the second wrong answer. You will proceed to the more vital areas. Bit strong, I think, is is the thought. <laughs> the vital areas. These are cards I didn't stack. You speak the truth. Julius is so disappointed. <laughs> well. at least I have laid your fears to rest. My compliments on a splendid operation. There is one thing, however, the... Whisper. Take him. 
to the farm. Derek Cracknell was one of the, the, the finer first assistants. He was first assistant on this film uh, and a number of others. I worked with him uh, outside Bond. Very good, very good first assistant and would have made a thundering good director. Sadly, he died far too young. Soon, so dear. Soon. Understand what you... Mr. Bond's words, my dear. I gave you every break possible. We had a 50-50 chance. You weren't even close. I had no choice. Please believe me. The gods. Not a gentleman. When the time came I myself would have given you love. You knew that. You knew that! There's only one proper way to deal with this. And one proper time. <laughs> This was not one of my favourite sets we're coming on to now. I don't like snakes and I don't like alligators. The villain was named Kananga in this, and it came about because the man who owned alligator, the alligator farm was Ross Kananga. It's a big tourist attraction today. His father had started this business, and his father was actually eaten by one of one of the alligators. The tonnage order is nearly complete. We move it out tonight. And I mean tonight, Mr. Bond. How much do you know about crocodiles, Bond? Oh, I've uh, always tried to keep them at arm's length myself. <laughs> Cute little nippers, ain't they? 
I don't suppose those potential overnight bags... Julius Harris had quite a problem sort of talking and timing his lines and operating these uh, claws. Also, the chicken he is going to have to throw to feed the, the, the alligators had, uh, in the sun, started turning somewhat rancid. And alligators uh, are fairly fussy. They don't like rancid chicken, and so they wouldn't perform, which meant that George Crawford had to produce the crew's lunch and feed it to the alligators. No, the crew did not get the rancid chicken afterwards. Uh, some of these babies live to be 200 years old. You can always tell by its brown nose. Ah, there's old Alvin. And he's a crop. Got over careless with him sometime back and he took my whole arm off. Well done, Albert. <laughs> They'll eat anything, even each other. Then again, sometime they can go a whole year without eating. <laughs> oh. I was rather counting on that. There are two ways to disable People wonder why uh, the villains set up this wonderful death for Bond and then walk away instead of watching it and enjoying it. I wonder myself. And the other? Well, it really is so that I can work out my plan of escape without them catching on to the idea. <laughs> Ross said that he cleared uh, most of the alligators from this area for when I am marooned on the island. I don't know whether the alligators knew that. I could see nasty beady eyes looking at me through some of the undergrowth. I thought it would be a very smart idea when of doing the wardrobe for this scene and suggested to Guy that I would wear, which I would never do today, but at that time thought was smart, wear alligator shoes or crocodile shoes. What a stupid thing to do. It might have been a distant cousin of one of them. You feel very lonely out there at this point. I didn't really like my co-stars in this scene. Cross uh, was done by Ross Kananga, although I started it, and I started it, and I did it on alligators that had charges, electric charges in, but 
you know, rubber ones, and so tails thrashed and everything else. It's fine, you know, you know you're going to jump, but there were still alligators in that water. There might still be today, waiting for a nice fat English actor to come back. It would seem to be an impossible task to train an alligator, but they had to get one to walk past camera. I have no idea to this day how Ross can anger to it. You may wonder why in some of the close-ups my hands are remarkably smooth. It's because that fire in one of the shots burned all the hairs off. Now we come to the part of the film that really was, was my favorite, to be able to drive a jet boat around the bayous. driven outboards before, but I'd never driven a jet boat. And with a jet boat, the, the steering is controlled by the jets. And so as long as it's moving, as long as there is power, you can turn. And to turn in a sharper angle, you just put on more power. It's sort of the complete opposite of your instincts to be able to turn around. And you can turn on in quite a, a tight area. Jerry Como was in, in charge of this boat sequence and in charge of the stunts. Nice little touch of humour, and of course now we're introduced for the first time in Bond to Sheriff Pepper, the real redneck. I wonder sometimes whether the Jackie Gleason character with Burt Reynolds was not based on Sheriff Pepper. I'm sure this ain't exactly your debut with this sort of thing. You picked the wrong Paris to haul ass through, boy. Nobody cuts and runs on Chef G.W. You gotta say, we don't quit, boy. Speaking, uh, by the by. 
Sheriff uh, Pepper is being played by Clifton James. He himself is a very nice man and very unredneck, but we came across a few rednecks while we were shooting around Louisiana. And Tommy Lane, a little later in the sequence, is driving his boat through one of the bayous, and after a couple of takes, he comes through, and the water, of course, is causing a few waves. And a man came out with a gun. He said some very uncomplimentary things about Tommy Lane's color and uh, what he was going to do. Boy, where you been all your life? That there is one of them new car boats. <laughs> by the powers invested in me by this parish, When I started the, the rehearsing, as I've said, that, you know, the power boat, the jet is, uh, is steered by, by the power. That's as long as the engine is running, then you, you have steering. But after we went round a, a, a couple of bends, and as the boat sort of leant over, the engine cut up because the tank wasn't full with petrol. The petrol just didn't get there. Uh, but fortunately, it picked up to, uh, on three occasions. On the fourth occasion, it did not pick up, and doing about 40 miles an hour, I just went in a dead straight line into a corrugated hut that was unfortunately standing on the side of the bayou. And I thought that was going to be the end of my bond. I, I went forward and I remember I hit my teeth on the, the windshield and then went backwards into the back of the boat. So I went off to the dentist. It was thought that I might possibly have uh, killed the root in my front teeth, which wouldn't have been a very pleasant thing to happen. Uh, also, I narrowly missed breaking my kneecap, uh, and I had a problem walking. In fact, for the first uh, weeks that we were shooting, and I was being shot in the boat, and so it was fine. You couldn't see my walking stick. I just hobble and get into the boat and do these shots. It was a fortunate piece of timing. We've got a swamp full of blank Russians. I remember when we were on this, uh, this, this location setting this up, I was introduced for the first time to softshell crab, uh, a Louisiana delicacy. Harry had, uh, had arranged this feast for us. It was delicious. Yes, sir, Captain. 
I understand. But I don't know right off where we're going to find the boat fast enough to catch it. I got it. You call my brother-in-law, Billy Bob. He's got the fastest boat. Oh, he's going to call Billy Bob. Billy Bob sure no tricks the ass. Here, call Billy Bob. Now, there's two boats, Billy Bob, and they're moving like buttered pigs. Now, I promised these boys here you'd get them. Don't let me down here. Cool down, J.W. I'm on my way. Want something, boy? Yes, I'd like to borrow this boat, if I may. Everybody on the river would like to borrow this boat. Goodbye, Billy Bob. Billy Bob, we got them spotted. It's the jet. Is the jet boat is the ideal thing for the bayous, because when you're going through shallow water you don't have a prop that's going to drag on anything that's my brother-in-law that's billy bob he'll get him billy bob will get him oh, some of these shots were <laughs> where i'm being followed by the camera boat and they just had to follow where i was going and we went over areas that I'd not been before. And on one occasion, we went tearing straight. And I knew that I could stop. And there was, I was faced with a solid wall across the bayou. That was the end of it. Uh, and I stopped, but the boat behind didn't uh, realize I was stopping. And they had to jam on the brakes really hard which sent the front of the boat down because the camera was, was on the front of the boat. <laughs> and the camera operator, went, camera operator went sliding into the water. I was not popular that day. Beautiful aerial shot, that. Any man showed just cause. Why they may not lawfully be joined together. Let him now speak, or else This shot went wrong a couple of times. And one of the boats ended up slightly wrecked. That's a wedding day that girl will always remember. Jimmy Stewart. This was the time that uh, that I, of course, was incapacitated with my leg, and some days were quite uncomfortable shooting. And uh, they wanted a. I'd already been dismissed for the day. Uh, and they said there was just one shot left, which they could get with, with the doubles hand, my doubles hand, throwing the gear lever forward or backwards. And I was just getting into the car, and I suddenly heard uh, Crackman's voice, "Come back, we need you." 
apparently the boat double for me was missing a thumb. And they realized that they need a hand with four fingers and a thumb. I had to come back. When the major stunt was going to take place and the, the big explosion, uh, I think Jerry Giroux thought it would be a very good idea if I was sitting crawling with a drink in my hand when the explosion went off. And the cameras could catch this sort of giant fireball and smoke behind me. Well, when that explosion went off, I leapt up three feet but so did all the cameramen. So <laughs> I was always in frame. It was quite a good shot. Felix, what are you doing here? We'll get to that later. Kananga's in town. He's got your girl with him. They just took off. Jesus, son of a bitch, I got it! I think this is wonderful, this scene, with the, the contrast of the apoplectic Sheriff Pepper going absolutely insane, Felix Lider realizing that Bond has caused all sorts of incidents. Would you enlighten the Sheriff, please? Yes, sir. And Bond calmly gets his tie straight. I love this line. A secret agent? On whose side? We busted the filet of soul an hour ago. We came up with nothing but these. Kanag is clear. You should have seen the size of the guy who got on the boat with him. Nine feet tall, I swear. Big top hat, a cockamamie flute in one hand, and solitaire in the other. Incendiary bombs are set for midnight. Now that gives you exactly 30 minutes. Watch out for sharks on the way back. We'll see you for breakfast, Felix. Good hunting. Mm -hmm. 
one one day when we're shooting in uh, New Orleans, uh, we were invited by Jim Garrison, who was the then district attorney, to visit uh, City Hall. And we went, it was very Bond-like. We went in through a garage and doors were shut behind us, elevator doors, and we went up and the doors were shut in his office. And he then showed us uh, eight millimeter footage of the assassination of President Kennedy, which backed up his theory of uh, there being shots from front and back. Very Bond-like. I thought that uh, he was very credible. I still do. I saw that footage. This set, of course, is supposed to be exterior, but is on a stage. As an actress, it's not, not difficult to look terrified under the circumstances. I'm glad it wasn't happening to me. I would have had to act and look cool. smoking but I'd like some
I was I was new to Bond. I wasn't new to making movies, uh, but you still stand back and you're quite impressed with with the staging of this set and this uh, appearance and that coffin full of snakes and the wonderful appearance of Jeffrey Holder when the grave when he comes up behind the or in the tombstone. <laughs> A wonderful touch with the eyeballs. Derek Madding's work. Excellent. Nothing like a few explosions and a lot of flame. Very effective. Jeffrey is a very, very large man. He was a, a, a wonderful choreographer and design, dancer. And very graceful to see a move such a big man. Had a beautiful apartment in New York. Uh, we went to dinner one night in Cubby and a few of us. The day, uh, or one of the days we were shooting this sequence, Jeffrey Holder, Baron Samdi, has to fall backwards into this coffin filled with snakes. Jeffrey was absolutely petrified of the snakes. He did not want to fall backwards at all. But Princess Alexandra was visiting the set that day and Jeffrey felt that he could not let the side down. He had to go through with it and fall backwards. Thank goodness he was there. We would never have got the shot otherwise. The, the hydraulic lift that uh, Baron Samdi makes his ascent and descent on is worked by his uh, henchman down below with a with a ratchet. We had to shoot the scene 30 to 40 feet above the ground on on top of uh, this platform, and, and Jane was uh, didn't take rather like me didn't take too kindly to heights. But I said, you know, it'd be all right. We were fine. And we did it two or three times. But then on the last take, it suddenly dropped about four feet, which threw her into a heap on the side of the, the platform. And she nearly went up. I grabbed her hair and pulled her back. That was, that was enough for me for one day. And I think enough for Jane for one film. Uh, the caves in Jamaica where we, we shot... <laughs> One one of our assistant directors, a very tall, thin young man, given the nickname by Derek Cracknell of Blade. And these caves were full of bats. And I remember he was standing, I, I, I was not in the shot, 
and he was standing at the set was lit in one direction and I was in the dark down one end of the cave and I came up behind Blade who was of a nervous disposition and I waved my hands between his legs and went <laughs> as the bats were coming out of the ceiling and he leapt about six feet up in the air and then fell in a heap on the floor. I, I felt very badly about it. I had to give him a very nice present. Very sturdy flower. You have been a relatively minor nuisance, in fact. But this gun. All those scenes, which seemed to take half a day or a day with shooting in the cave, when you see the finished film, they're put together and it's a matter of two or three seconds, which is why some movies are very expensive and why they take so long. Very good plot point to bear in mind that uh, this can fill you full of wind. Ingenious! Uh, don't pull the pen out. The air in here is foul enough already. Oh. Somehow I never thought of Guy Hamilton, of course, had told Yafikoto that, that the character Kananga should really believe that he is as cool as Bond and and he's a big hero which is as I've often said the only way to play a villain is to play it as the man who firmly believes that he is the most heroic individual the rightest thinking man there is correct again Mr. Bond what a quick study you are let me show you exactly how it works another good man quits lying relax you must have got tied up somewhere these cans hold 25 pounds each. Not where in the hell can the man be? He must have got, he must have got tied up somewhere. <laughs> sure, sure, and all that can anger, but I'm sure there must be a simpler way of drowning someone. Drown, Mr. Bond. I doubt you. I know some of this seemed to take a long time. Uh, we were doing it because. Uh, Yaffet uh, and Guy Hamilton didn't quite see eye to eye all the time, so we'd sort of hang around, uh, tied up to this thing while Guy and Yaffet had a few words. People think that that is, uh, you know, fake blood on my arm. No, it was a sharp knife he had. Something the blood coming on the arm was done, of course, by there being a little hole at the end of that blade, which the blood could come out of. Slowly, 
that our diners assemble. Bond was not the first film I made at Pinewood. I made the Persuader series on stages L and M, so I was very familiar with Pinewood. My first visit to Pinewood, however, was in 1947, while I was still serving in the army, stationed in Germany. And I came on leave and to do a test for a film called Blue Lagoon that Gene Simmons was going to do and subsequently did with Donald Houston. And I was one of three boys being tested that particular day at Pinewood. One of the others was Lawrence Harvey, who was then Larry Skickney. And the girl I tested with, who's a 16-year-old actress who knew she wasn't going to get the part because it was already assigned to Gene Simmons, a contract player, her rank. But they wanted screen time with her, and Frank Launder was directing. The girl was Claire Bloom. did have an inflated idea of himself. That is a very pretty outfit that Jane has in this. Say goodbye to Felix, darling. A lovely line. What are you going to do on a train for 16 hours? Say goodbye to Felix, darling. <laughs> This was before I started my uh, running game of backgammon with Cubby. Harry and I used to play gin all the time. I would um, imagine that uh, Solitaire was rather silly to play cards, even though she had been able to manipulate the tarot cards. She didn't manipulate them quite as well as Bond. Well, on your way up, would you, James? 
wouldn't want anyone to just walk in on us, would we? First time in my life I feel like a complete woman. The slightest touch of your hand. I was always so afraid that a part of me would stay with the past. Now I know there's no chance of that any longer. Just to be able to reach out and touch you. When I did this, I was not to know this was going to be one of the first of many fight scenes I would do in a train. As far as I remember, I wasn't doubled in this. It was actually a good gag, the smashing away of the rungs, the ladder. seems to be all the villain's henchmen in the Bonds have heavy metal somewhere in their background. I think it's wonderful the way that these villains always seem to know where Bond is going to be and manage to get on the same train and find where his compartment is. <laughs> In the Bond films that I made, I, I think that uh, although Spy Who Loved Me was my favourite of the Bonds that I, I did, I think that Live and Let Die has to be number two in terms of filmmaking. I think it's very good indeed. I think the mixture of comedy uh, and action. Uh, Due, of course, to, to Guy Hamilton and to Tom Mankiewicz's excellent screenplay. Well, thank you if you've watched all the way through. Thank you very much. My name is Roger Moore, and I was the fellow playing Bond. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it and talking about it. And I hope you will return with me in The Man with the Golden Gun. <laughs> Say live and let die